Well, this morning we're in Acts chapter 10. Um, let's, uh, let's look there. We're going to be looking at a character that is not spoken of much in the scriptures, but is a very important Bible character. This is going to be two sermons. We're going to go this week and next week related to Cornelius and the gospel and the Holy Spirit coming to the Gentiles in a dramatic way. So Cornelius was a Roman centurion. And it shouldn't be overlooked that Roman centurions were the ones that nailed Jesus to the cross. And that class of people are the first class of people that the gospel comes to and that the Holy Spirit is poured out on. Those who are enemies of Jesus. We're going to see this morning the extending of the gospel in fullness to the Gentiles. There has been some of that happening, but this is going to be where the Old Testament conditional covenants of God are being extended to Gentiles. The conditions of the Old Testament covenants, all those conditions are met in Jesus Christ. He is the one who perfectly fulfills the law. That the barriers between Jew and Gentile being pulled down so that there is one church, there is one body of Christ, not two. The unconditional hope of salvation being extended to all the nations, to people from every tongue and tribe and around the world. We're going to see this morning that it is God at work. We've been seeing God at work for the past uh, number of weeks, and you're going to keep seeing it throughout the book of, the, of book of Acts. It's not just something that is happening or something that's just tumbling forward without cause, but God is directing. He is causing things to happen to fulfill his purposes and to have those be fulfilled in his time and according to his timing and according to his choosing. You know, we ask questions like, why Paul? Out of all the people in the world, why Paul? Well, I can't answer that question for you. I, I, what I can tell you is it's who God wanted. God wanted this man to go and bear witness to the Gentiles, and so he did. Why Cornelius? Well, we could point at a lot of different things. We'll see some things here today, but it was what God wanted to happen. Why Peter? A lot of these why questions are not for us to answer. They're God's purpose. And this is what God is doing. And all the time in the world, you'll hear me say this often, it is not about us wanting to do something for God. It's about us joining God where he is working. So we always look, where is God working? What is God doing in the world? And how can I be a part of what God is doing in the world? That's why we're going to this place in Africa, because we believe God is working there and we want to be a part of it. And God keeps opening the doors to be a part of it. And so we keep walking through the open doors that God puts before us. And God will put open doors before every one of you that you might be a part of his work in the world. Thirdly, that this is a progressive work. I want to remind you of that. The whole Bible is the progressive work of God from creation to the end of the world. God is progressively doing things. He is progressively revealing more of himself. He is progressively having his salvation spread throughout the world. And this is a major step of the progress of the outpouring of the gospel. God continues his progressive work in the world. In this New Testament period, it began with Jesus, and Jesus is preaching uh, to the Jews, preaching of the gospel to the Jews. I'll read for you from uh, John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. 
The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this passage speaks about Jesus coming into the world and preaching and speaking of himself, calling people to repentance, calling for people to believe in him. And the first audience was the Jews, the people of the chosen people of God in the Old Testament. But those people did not believe. They did not in mass come to Christ. Some of them, yes, but most of them, no. They did not receive him. But those who did receive him, he gave the right to be called children of God. So the message progressively goes out. After the ascension of Jesus, Peter and the apostles go preaching to Jerusalem at the temple, the immediate area. We've had some sermons on that. And then Philip goes out to Samaria a little bit further out. We've had some sermons on that and people begin to believe there. A few weeks ago, we had uh, the Lord directing Philip to go to a, a desert road to encounter an Ethiopian man that he might come to know Christ and that the gospel might be taken to North Africa. And now this morning, uh, well, I guess last few weeks, we've been talking about Paul being raised up as a missionary to the Gentile people. And while Paul is being raised up as a missionary to the Gentile people, we're going to see this morning that Peter is being specifically sent to them to get this whole thing started that Paul is going to end up walking in the midst of. And so this is Acts chapter 10 this morning. Let's stand to honor the Lord as we read his word. So this is a little bit longer reading. I'm going to read 43 verses, but I remind you, if you can't read the Bible in church, where can you read the Bible? So let's read uh, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 43. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the poor, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When an angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, "'Rise, Peter, kill and eat.' And Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Verse 17. 
Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you uh, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee with the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name." May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right, a wonderful passage. Um, a great story. Just as a reminder, this is why we teach 
Bible stories and children's ministry. Kids love stories. It's the perfect time to teach stories because we can't read all the Bible stories here. We'd be here. I could, if I read all the Bible stories every week, we'd be here for 20 years. I still wouldn't get through all of them. But kids love Bible stories. I encourage you, read your children stories from the Bible so that they can get this collection down as a foundation for their theological learning. We'll go as far as we can today and we'll pick up and continue again next week. A man named Cornelius is how this starts. He was a centurion. The Bible tells us four things about him. The first is that he was a centurion, which is a commander of 100 Roman soldiers, and that he was a part of something called the Italian cohort. A cohort was six groups of 100, so he commanded one of the groups of 100. And that he was located in Caesarea, or Caesar area, it was the the town of Caesar. This was from 6 AD onward, the place of governance where the Romans uh, ruled over Judea. And so it should not be surprising that he, as a governor or an overseer, a military overseer of the people, was located in this town. It tells us that he was devout in his fear of the Lord. And that he was known for this. He had a reputation for being a devout, God-fearing person. What does it mean to be devout? To be devout means that you are devoted to something. Your heart is in it. Your energies are in it. Your money is in it. You are passionate about whatever this thing is. And even though his life, in his working life, is related to being a Roman soldier, a professional Roman soldier and a leader in that, his heart is for the Lord. And he is a God-fearing person. He is not a Jew But he understands that the Jews have believed and understand who God is. And so he becomes this bridge figure. He becomes the person that is first welcomed into the Christian faith as a Gentile and is not required to become a Jew in order to enter that. So we're going to talk about that more later and more next week because there's a lot to unpack there. But I ask you, every one of us when we read this, should reflect and say, what am I devout about? Am am I devout about anything? Many of Americans, many Americans are not devout about anything. They're just apathetic. They don't care. They just kind of wander through the day, do a little bit of this, do a little bit of that. Their heart is not into anything. Their heart's just dead. As Christians, we should not be this way. There are many people that are devout about their jobs. They will do anything to accomplish their job. They'll sacrifice any relationship, give up any amount of money to do what they feel like they are passionate about in their work, and they will sacrifice anything in order to accomplish that. Some people are passionate about sports. Some people are passionate about their exercise routine. I mean, they will literally rearrange the whole schedule of their life to make sure that this routine gets accomplished. When we are devout about the Lord Jesus, that type of thing happens in our life related to God. We reorient the things of our life in order to have time with God, to be near the Lord, to be in a place like this, to be in church, because it matters to us. And Cornelius was that type of person, devout. And devotion is shown by action. You can't have a person that's devout in their heart where it doesn't overflow into the actions of their life. And so the actions of his life are defined by generous aid to the poor and praying continually. Now, we have to back up and remember what we're looking at here. 
the Jews are an occupied people, a conquered and occupied people. By who? Well, by the Romans. He is the occupying enforcer in this land. And yet he worships the God of a conquered people and gives deeply of his own resources to the poor of that nation. So wrap your mind around that a little bit. That's, that's a big deal. He understands somehow that even though these people have been conquered by Rome, he does not worship the Roman gods. He believes and knows that they have somehow understood who God is. And he's a part of this governing system that is there. And yet he is merciful to them, good to them, and honors the Lord and is waiting for God. This is a rare thing. Okay, For me, Cornelius is sort of a New Testament version in certain ways of Daniel in the Old Testament. And let me say why I think that. He's a person that holds a high governing rank and particularly a military position. And yet he is also devout and honors God and loves his neighbor. Many people think that you cannot put those two things together. It's not possible to be in an elevated position and in the military and also honor God and love your neighbor and be devout. They, they, for many people, those things don't go together. But they do come together in this character. And they do come together in Daniel. And it's important to realize that throughout this whole situation with Peter and as he enters into the church, that he is never called to leave his civil role. Instead, we see him as an influencer of people around him. In this passage, we'll see that one of the people he sends is a devout soldier under his command, someone that he is influencing for Christ. We're going to see a great number of people gathered together. Why? Because Cornelius is a spiritual leader. He's a spiritual leader of his home. Imagine if you saw some great thing from God and wanted to get your family together. I am so excited about this. You've got to see this. Would your family come or would they say, you're crazy. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Well, his family came because he was known for his devotion to God in a real earnest way that was influencing his family and the community around him. So these are side things, but I think they're very important about the character of Cornelius. So what we have before us in these 43 verses and then beyond, as we'll see the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, in the, the verses beyond 43, is a divine appointment. I know that if you're a Christian, there have been times in your life where you entered into a situation and the way things worked out and the way you walked away from it said, man, that has got to be something that the Lord worked out because that, there's no way that was coincidence. It was just too amazing the way I had the chance to talk to somebody about Jesus and the way they were prepared and I was prepared and the situation was just, just right. And this is one of those times. It's not coincidence. This is God's divine working out of things. But he works out these plans and these purposes in the normal course of our life. I love how this story starts at 3 o'clock on a random day. This guy's just going through his life on a Tuesday, and at 3 o'clock, an angel of the Lord appears to him. God has something going on that he is not aware of at all. And this is a consistent pattern in the Bible. People just follow the Lord. You just act in faith day by day by day, one day after the other, one foot in front of the other, one act of devotion after the next. And the Lord is the one who decides when he's going to break in and do something different in your life. And so it says on 3 p.m., he sees a vision, an angel sent from God. 
An angel is a messenger, and this angel has a message for him. He calls him by name. He starts out with saying, Cornelius. Can you imagine that? Some, some angel shows up and says, Vic. I'm like, what? Okay. And he says, what is it, Lord? And he answers. He responds to this. But before that, it describes him as everyone is when they see something that comes straight out of heaven. It says he's terrified. Now that means more. It means something when, you know, it's talking about a farmer or something that may not have seen things. This guy is a battle-hardened Roman centurion, trained in courage and fighting and a leader of men into battle. We have no idea what level of, you know, of war he saw. But for this man to be terrified, that is saying something. Why is he terrified? Because this is not like some barbarian, or well, this, is, this is something not of this world, something that he has never seen before. And the glory of this angel terrifies him. He asks, what, what is it, Lord? And then he's told something just beautiful, something that ought to sink into our hearts. He says, your prayers and your aid to the poor has ascended to God. That's wild. We pray... And I know that we ask God for things and we are, we are praying to God. And I, and I know that our faith is real. But how often does it really sink into you that what you're praying for, God really hears and really listens to you? That your prayers ascend to heaven. That our worship here today is heard by God. That your acts of generosity and sacrifice to the poor are known by God. We, we're told in the scriptures that we should not announce our giving. We should not stand on the corners and make much of ourselves and print out the big check and make sure that everybody sees it and that type of thing. It should be done quietly for the Lord. But the Lord sees acts of charity and acts of kindness. And he knows. And so this is uh, astonishing. It's like the guest of honor, I guess. You know, you think of the, the State of the Union address every year. There's always somebody up in the booth and oh, this person, this great thing, and they're recognized and everybody claps and it's just a normal person that was brought in there. And, but the President of the United States is recognizing this person. How much greater that you would be recognized in some way by God for the basic faithfulness of your life. That's astonishing. It's the same basic thing that happens with Mary when the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, you have found favor with God. Your life in its devotion and its passion is known by God. And here is something that you are being asked to do and enter into. And so he's given directions. He says, send men to Joppa, not yourself. He doesn't want him to go. He wants him to send others. Bring back this guy named Peter. He's staying by the sea with a tanner named Simon. And that's it. There's no why. Like you, want, you got a million questions about this. What is this all about? Why should I do this? We all want to know those things. And some of us struggle with that deeply. It's, we are, everyone as Christians called to walk by faith. And this is not unusual in the scriptures for God to give just enough direction to do what he's asking you to do. And you walk by faith and then more is revealed as you go on. But many people stumble greatly with that. They want all the whys answered, all the what's answered. And if I get all of this squared up perfectly, then I'll go follow the Lord. That is not how the scriptures work. When we are given clear direction from God by faith, we walk in those ways and we see how he unfolds the rest. 
So the obedience begins in verse 7. He sends these two servants out with a, another devout soldier, and the three of them head down the road for a hundred plus mile journey southwest. Caesarea is in the north, Joppa is on the coast in the southwest. And it takes them about a day to make this travel. Well, then we switch scenes to another. I guess it would be Wednesday at this point. If we, if we start on a Tuesday, that's hypothetical, folks. But it's just a week. And so if it was Tuesday, then it's Wednesday for Peter. And Wednesday, he's, he's hungry. He's sitting up on the roof. And remember, these are flat roofs. It's not that he's perched on the roof. It's a, it's a flat Middle Eastern roof. And he is hungry. And he is praying because it's his normal pattern of devotion during his day. Again, a normal day, normal devotion. And while he is on this roof, while he's praying, waiting for lunch to to be made, the Lord presents a vision to him. It says trance here. I don't want you to be confused by what that means. In chapter 11, verse 5, when he is recounting this, he speaks of it as a vision. A, a vision, trance, these are things that are seen, but a person is not physically entering into. We're going to see in Acts chapter 12, when Peter is imprisoned and an angel comes to him to deliver him from this prison, he thinks it's a vision. And then he realizes, no, this is not a vision. I'm actually being delivered from this prison. And so there's two different things. But this is a vision. But it is a turning point. Peter, as the leader of the church at this point in time, is given a clear vision from the Lord to transition something from the Old Testament or from the Old Covenant, I should say, to the New Covenant. And it's going to be a distinct difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So in this understanding or in this vision, the heavens are opened and a sheet descends. And on it are all kinds of animals. That doesn't mean every type of animal, but it's a, it's a variety of animals. So you've got reptiles, birds, mammals, whatever. And clearly in this sheet are animals that were known to be forbidden to be eaten by uh, Jews. Because the voice from heaven says, rise, kill, eat. And Peter's response is, no, I, I've never done this and I'm not going to do that. He seems to think that it's a test of faithfulness. You know, are you going to eat this or not? Well, no, any, no good Jew, no law-abiding Jew, now hold on for that for a second, but no law-abiding Jew is going to eat these things because they are the dividing line between clean and unclean. So to have some background on this as to why this is so important, we have to go back to Leviticus chapter 11. So some of those books of the Old Testament are hard to read. This is law after law after law after law after law. You need to, at some point in your Christian life, wade through that stuff because it was, it was formational. It was the foundation for the Jewish culture. There were three basic categories of law in the Old Testament. There was the moral law. The moral law related to our moral character before God. Now, those laws remain in effect. That's, that's their Ten Commandments type of laws. You should honor the Lord your God, not use his name in vain. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't commit adultery. These types of things. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. There were also civil laws, civil laws that related to the actual governance of national Israel, like the laws related to uh, the cities of refuge if a person kills a person, and various ways that the, the, the nation was actually governed. Well, when the nation stopped being a thing, those civil laws were no longer in effect. And then there were also ceremonial laws, laws that related to the functioning of the temple, 
how the sacrifices were to be prepared, the series of festivals, all these types of things that related to the ceremonial worship of the Jewish people. Well, when the temple was destroyed by the providence of God, never to be rebuilt again, those ceremonial laws went away. They were no longer necessary because Jesus was the final and the perfect sacrifice. There was no longer any need for a sacrificial system to continue on that was symbolic when the substance of that symbolism had come and been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And so, Part of these ceremonial laws related to cleanness, ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness. And what that related to was the separation of the Jews from the rest of the world. Many people wrongly think that the dietary laws of the Jews in the Old Testament had to do with health. Like, oh, it's healthier or better to eat these things and not these things. I disagree with that completely because what do you do with that in this situation? Does that mean that God no longer cares about the health of Peter or everybody beyond that so you can just go eat a bunch of unhealthy stuff? That's a whole separate category of thinking, what's healthy and what's not healthy. The clean, unclean laws of food in the Old Testament related to separating the Jews from all the world. By them having an unusual dietary set that wasn't like anybody else, no matter where they went, they were always going to be over here and the other people over here. And that's what holiness is all about. It's about a separation from the world. And all these unusual laws related to ceremony and food and circumcision and other things like that continually kept the Jewish people separated from all the rest of the peoples of the world as a peculiar people. And so at this point in time, the Lord is bringing something new to happen. And the thing that is going to be the defining factor of what separates us from the world going forward is not going to be whether we eat pork or not, but whether we love Jesus or not. Going forward, following after Jesus and his ways will be that which separates us from the world. And by the way, if we are earnest followers of Jesus, it will separate us from the world. And if people see no difference between you and the world, you should question whether your following of Jesus is earnest and sacrificial. And so what we have here is Peter being told these things related to eating food or not eating food is not what is going to make you clean or unclean anymore. There's a transition happening here, but he doesn't really understand it. What's repeated three times Peter, kill and eat. Peter, kill and eat. A, a clear vision to the man in leadership with a voice from God. But it says in verse 17 that after this ends, he's left sitting up on the roof waiting for lunch confused. He does not understand what is happening. This has happened, and again, it's partial. He's not quite clear what is going on, and he's just waiting. Well, at that time... The folks, while he's waiting for lunch and this vision, these people are coming down the road. And when the vision finishes, there's a knock on the door and he is prompted by God's spirit to say, there's three guys at the door. You're going to go with them. One of them is a Roman soldier. Now, whether he's rest, dressed in his Roman soldier garb or not, I don't know. But if he was, that would be cause for alarm. Uh, when the soldier shows up at your door and says, you're coming with me, that uh, is a concern. But the Lord prompts him to go. And he does. He asks them in verse uh, 19, why have you come? Well, they tell the story about Cornelius. Uh, and Peter also does not fully understand what is happening. 
But in continuing in this vein, he is walking by faith. Here's a little bit more. Here's a little bit more. Here's a little bit more until we reach the end where they're going to understand what is happening. But as they leave the next day, they take other brothers from Joppa with them. So at least six people are traveling back. The three that came, plus Peter, plus a plurality of people. So there may be more than six, but there's at least six going back up the road. And if we put the timeline together, it takes them a couple of days to go back up the road. So where the vision from Cornelius to the time of them coming through the door is four days. But when they arrive... Cornelius is waiting for them. And I've mentioned this before, but we need to talk about it again. Cornelius is waiting for them with his family, member, family members and friends. We're told in verse 2 that he feared God with his household. This has to do with spiritual leadership. And this man has seen this vision, understands that God is doing something, and doesn't want to just be a part of this alone. He wants other people around him to be a part of this. He wants his, whatever it is that Peter is going to say when he walks through this door, he wants his family to hear it as well. And he wants his friends to hear it as well. And he's zealous enough to go out and say, I want you to come and be here. I don't know what's getting ready to happen, but it's something of the Lord, and I want you to see it. And his life has a level of devotion to where people want to hear what he has to say. And they don't think he's crazy because his life aligns with his devotion. And so whatever it is that's happening with Cornelius, I'm willing to come here and see what this is and hear what is going to be said. So when Peter comes through the door, he is greeted by a group. But we need to understand that prior to the vision of Peter... It would not have been lawful for Peter to extend the Jewish covenants of salvation to a Gentile in his home. And Peter acknowledges that. He said, in the past, it would have been unclean for me to come here. But I've seen a vision from the Lord that is helping me to understand that God's doing something different here. The difference between clean and unclean is abolished. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is being pulled down. The first of it is these dietary laws, and we're going to see in Acts chapter 15 that circumcision, the great uh, marker of Judaism, is also pulled down, that it is no longer necessary for someone to enter into such things to come into the church. In the past, to join the people of God meant to become Jewish. If you wanted to come into the people of God... There was no third category. You became a Jew because the Jews were the people of God, the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. If you wanted to follow after the Lord, you came in and started eating this way. If you were a man, you were circumcised. You went to the temple. You entered into this this, uh, ceremonial system of sacrifices. You became a Jew. Well, in the New Testament, to become a follower of God equals believing in Jesus and entering into his church in obedience to God's command. There's a lot more that can be said there. We're going to enter into that next week because Romans chapter 11 dives into that deeply and we're going to spend time there camped out next week. But I want to read to you a wonderful summary passage of this where Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 and following. Ephesians 2.13 and following. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself 
is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's a lot said there. That's a beautiful passage. There was open hostility between Jew and Gentile prior to this time. And the Lord begins to change these things, that in Christ, this dividing wall of hostility might be brought down and destroyed, that two peoples might be made one people in Christ. We talk often in every new member class of this church, we talk about how there is one universal body of Christ. We are a local manifestation of, of the body of Christ. This is a local church. But when we go over to places in Africa and other places and visit other believers in Jesus, there is ultimately only one body of Christ. The only time that we'll see this gathered together fully will be heaven. When we're all gathered around, every local congregation of Christians from every place in the world gathered at one time around the throne of Jesus, that will be glorious because it will be heaven. But there will be no division. There will not be a Jewish area and a Gentile area in heaven. There will be just one church. Now, again, there's a lot to be said there. We're going to talk more about it next week in Romans chapter 11. I would encourage you to read that chapter before we gather next week. But you need to see that in the resurrection of Jesus, one church is being put forward. It's a progressive work that unfolds its way over time, but it is one church, and it is unified under the banner of the salvation and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Peter begins his sermon in verse 34 with there is no partiality in God. There is no favoritism in God. He is changing these ways. There has been a hardening of the Jews. Most of them have rejected Jesus. And now because of that, the gospel is going to all the nations. It's like the parable of the wedding feast, if you remember that parable, where the the person putting on the feast goes to his friends and family members and says, I want you to come into this feast. It's going to be awesome. You're invited. And they say, I'm not interested. I got to go and mow my grass. Uh, I got to go uh, feed my cat. And there's various excuses, all of which are totally lame, which means they don't want to have any, they're not interested in coming. Well, the, 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 the person throwing the feast in the parable says, well, then go out to the highways and the byways and compel all the people to come in. Just the, the, the people that are walking down the street that, that mean nothing to anyone. And those people are glad to come. They're, they're thrilled to get a, a, an invitation to a feast. And this is what it's like as the gospel goes out from the privileged Jews that reject Jesus into the world with people burdened by their sins and their guilt. And when they hear that they can be forgiven of their sins and have peace with God through Christ Jesus, they rejoice and they come into the kingdom of God. And so the, the sermon ends with verse 43, where he says this, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the same gospel message that I preach to you today. That if you will believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you will be forgiven of your sins. The real guilt that weighs you down will be forgiven before God for Jesus' sake. 
that the Lord Jesus does not forget your sins. He counts your sins against Jesus that you might be free, that you might be seen as guiltless. This is imputation. Your guilt counted to Christ, Christ's righteousness accounted to you. This wonderful exchange that is by grace and mercy that none of us deserve, but we enter into this by faith. This is the message that Peter preached and that I preach to you today and call on you that if you have never believed in Jesus, that you will believe in him this morning. Let's pray together.